Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, now part of Networks, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Well, another month, another Patch Tuesday. This month's round of patches addresses 121 flaws. So it's a pretty big set of patches. I think it's been quite a while since we've hit the triple digits on number of vulnerabilities being addressed. BleepyComputer.com reports that 17 of the 121 vulnerabilities fixed in this month's patches are classified as critical as they allow remote code execution or elevation of privileges. A complete breakdown of the vulnerabilities shows 64 elevation of privilege vulnerabilities, 6 security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 31 remote code execution vulnerabilities, 12 information disclosure vulnerabilities, seven denial of service vulnerabilities, and one spoofing vulnerability. Two of the vulnerabilities are considered to be zero days. One of the actively exploited zero day vulnerabilities fixed is jokingly known as dog walk and tracked by Microsoft as CVE-2022-34713. And this is a Microsoft Windows support diagnostic tool remote code execution vulnerability. The other zero-day vulnerability is tracked as CVE-2022-30134, and this is a Microsoft Exchange Information Disclosure vulnerability and allows an attacker to read targeted email messages. As always, the products patched by Microsoft are many and varied, plus other vendors have also released their own set of patches in line with Patch Tuesday. BleepyComputer.com also reported and highlighted Windows 11 KB5016629, which is a cumulative update for Windows 11, available as part of the August patches, and it provides security updates and improvements, including fixes for File Explorer and the Start menu issues, which I covered on a previous episode of the podcast. Before getting away from the Windows update news, I don't want to labor usually this first week as I've been saying the last couple of months, you know, there's the announcement of the patches and then for the next two weeks, there's probably going to be stories about fallout caused by like conflicts caused by the patches. So not to labor the point too much about the updates for this month, but I did want to talk a little bit more about that zero day, the dog walk zero day that has been patched this month. That's a pretty interesting one. BleepyComputer.com reported that security researcher Imri Rad discovered this vulnerability in January 2020, but Microsoft decided not to fix it after deeming it not to be a security vulnerability. So, you know, one of those have covered several of these vulnerabilities that have been disclosed to Microsoft over the years that they've said, no, we're not going to fix it. That's just working as expected. 
So while they initially said that they were not going to fix this particular vulnerability, after the discovery of the MSDT vulnerability, known more commonly as Felina, and which was covered on this podcast, security researchers once again pushed to have the dog walk vulnerability fixed as well. And clearly Microsoft decided to do so with this month's updates. According to Microsoft, DogWalk affects all Windows versions under support, including the latest client and server releases, Windows 11 and Windows Server 2022. So be sure to patch as soon as possible, but of course, not without proper testing. And check back next week to find out some information about issues caused by these patches. This week, Microsoft announced Azure Virtual Desktop now supports provisioning trusted launch virtual machines with custom images stored in an Azure Compute Gallery. Trusted launch protects against advanced and persistent attack techniques by combining technologies which can be independently enabled such as Secure Boot and a virtual trusted platform module, which has become all the rage with Windows 11 requiring TPM. Some of the key benefits of trusted launch virtual machines are that it protects against the installation of malware-based rootkits and bootkits with Secure Boot, provides your VM with its own dedicated TPM instance with a TPM2 compliant vTPM, as we just discussed, uh, protects Windows kernel mode processes against injection and execution of malicious or unverified code with hypervisor code integrity, and also isolates and protects secrets so that only privileged system software can access them with Windows Defender Credential Guard. In unfortunate news, the expected release of Ubuntu version 2204.1, which was expected last week, got delayed. Betanews.com reports that there was an issue causing snaps not to run on computers that used OEM install options. The good news, however, is that the release was only delayed by a week and it should be available on August 11th, which means it's probably out and available by the time you hear this episode of the podcast. At the time of this recording, a breaking story is the the Microsoft 365 status Twitter account has stated that they're investigating an issue where some users in the EMEA region are unable to connect to some Microsoft 365 services. They said their investigation is focused on potential issues where legitimate Microsoft traffic is being blocked across multiple regions. They said while working with their firewall partners to investigate Snort Rule 1-60381, They've received confirmation from some affected users that disabling the rule provides media relief. They closed, just as I was reading this, they closed the incident, I guess, stating that third-party providers have disabled the affected snort rule and anticipate that the change should be fully propagated within one to two hours. So as of this recording, it's still affecting customers, but by the time this goes live, it should no longer be affecting customers. But people in the InfoSec community had a little bit of a question and concern around this, suggesting that this was likely caused by phishing or malware hosted on Microsoft domains that serve both client content and Microsoft content. This might be one that develops further, so there might be more information on this on next week's episode. Google Cloud Platform has announced upcoming new sites in Malaysia, Thailand, and New Zealand. 
There's no date or timeline for when these new sites will be operational and available for customers, but when they go live, it will push the number of sites in the region to 14 and 37 globally. The three new regions also will each have three zones to safeguard against service disruptions and will be supported by Google's existing interconnect locations in Auckland, Bangkok, as well as Kuala Lumpur and Cyberjaya. These provide direct connections between a customer's on-prem network and Google's global cloud network, according to Google Cloud's Asia-Pacific Vice President, Karen Bajwa. So if you're keeping score at home, AWS recently announced new sites, I think just last week, off the back of their earnings call. And obviously now Google Cloud is kind of following suit in announcing some of their upcoming new sites. It's also very interesting because a lot of manufacturing has been set up in some of these new regions where the sites are going, so it kind of makes sense. As previously reported, but now also reported again by the awesome Mary Jo Foley of ZDNet, Microsoft is warning Office 2016 and 2019 users that they might encounter issues when connecting to Microsoft 365 backend services starting in October 2023. But they have stated that they won't be blocked from doing so. So a bit of a conundrum there, right? May encounter issues, so, you know, don't stay on this, but you're not gonna be actively blocked by Microsoft if you're still on those older versions. And if you weren't aware, Microsoft Office 2013 support ends on April 11th, 2023, so a few months before that October deadline. But Office 2016 support doesn't actually end until October 14, 2025, which also is the same date that support for Office 2019 ends. October 2025 date is the end of extended support. Mainstream support for Office 2016 ended in October 2020, and for Office 2019, it will end in October 2023. And the end of mainstream support means Microsoft no longer provides feature updates or security fixes for these products. In response to a request for a comment from Mary Jo, Microsoft stated, quote, Microsoft will not be blocking supported and up-to-date Office clients from connecting to Microsoft 365 cloud services. However, as announced in April 2017 and clarified in February 2018, Microsoft plans to stop supporting Office clients out of mainstream support when connecting to Microsoft 365 cloud services. Practically, this means that as we make updates to Exchange Online, SharePoint Online, and other Microsoft 365 services, we will not be building around the constraints inherent in the older peripheral Office clients that are already out of mainstream support. Customers will not be blocked in connecting, but they may not get the full value of new investments in our cloud services. Over time, they may also run into unexpected issues." End quote. So in short, to summarize, Office 2016-2019 will continue to work with Microsoft 365 or Office 365 backend services at least until those Office editions are out of support, which should be October 2025 based on the ZDNet article. They just might not work well, <laughs> especially starting next year. So it's use at your own risk. Seems like a good time for me to also remind you that Office 365 won't support your multi-session server operating systems, which you may be using currently for published desktops. For these published desktops in your environment, 
just know that you know you're gonna have to move <laughs> if you're running office on those currently and also as you may or may not have noticed azure active directory join currently does not support the server operating system either so it really seems for those published multi-user session desktops the evd in the multi-session windows 10 and windows 11 up in azure is really the only sensible path forward i guess Petri.com reported this week that Microsoft's Smart App Control has been updated to support more malicious file types, including ISO and LNK files. Obviously, ISO being those ISO images that you can mount and install bootable media or just any real media that's on an ISO, and LNK files being shortcuts. Microsoft started testing the Smart App Control feature with Insiders in Windows 11 build 22567 in March. It enables users to automatically block potentially untrusted or malicious applications from running on Windows 11 devices. The feature uses artificial intelligence and code signing to intelligently predict malicious behavior that could cause the device to run slowly, show ads, or install bloatware. Along with ISO and LNK file types that have just been included, SmartApp Control can block IMG, VDH, VHDX, AppPref-MS, BAT, CMD, CHM, CPL, JS, JSE, MSC, MSP, REG, VBE, VBS, and WSF files with a full list of supported file types to be published soon. Now, a few quick hit stories to wrap up the news for this week. Well, some of them are quick hit stories, like this one, for example. Power Toys version 0.61.6 has been released with several fixes, but no new features. ZDNet reported about a new designer tool from Microsoft that looks like a Canva competitor, as well as a create app site for templates. So I saw that being compared to Microsoft front page from yesteryear. The product is currently codenamed Oasis. It is reported there are synergies, which I take to mean integrations or features aimed at the likes of LinkedIn posts and PowerPoint. Very little information is in the public domain now, so watch this space for further developments. RTE.ie reported this week that EU competition regulators have asked app developers via a survey whether Alphabet Unit Google's threat to remove apps from its Play Store if they use other payment options instead of its own billing system has hurt their business. The EU competition enforcer also wanted to know if Google allowed them to use an alternative payment system, charged a service fee for this, or complained about the security of their payment method. So it sure seems, based on this survey, that the EU competition regulators may be going after Google once again on anti-competition grounds. The awesome Tim Mangan's PSF Tools version 2022.08.05 has been released, and it includes some new features, including incorporating platform changes per Microsoft across the board to help deal with CLR issues, multiple file redirection fix-ups, including adding support for AppV package drive files and more, and renumbered debug instance starting numbers for improved clarity when debugging. If you're not familiar, I covered it on a previous episode of the podcast, but 
Microsoft has been pretty slow or completely absent in the development of the package support framework. So Tim Mangan forked the PSF to his own GitHub repository and has been maintaining a version on his own repository. So be sure to check that out if you're working with MSIX. Very interestingly, I saw that VMware shared that you can save up to 10% off your flight to San Francisco for VMware Explore 2022 US or to Barcelona for VMware Explore 2022 Europe using a promotional offer from United Airlines. They say you simply reserve your flight to San Francisco or Barcelona using the United Airlines website and at checkout apply promo code ZK. ZV950833. It's that easy. So if you're maybe a little trepidatious about going to an in-person conference again because of the state of the world and just the fact that the airlines are kind of a mess right now, perhaps 10% discount could convince you to dip your toes back in. Microsoft have released Windows Package Manager version 1.3. And this brings with it support for portable apps that can run without having to be installed first. So I guess like some different container types, maybe like ThinApp, for example, or possibly even just some standalone apps like Procmon. You can now display system architecture with the winget-info command, and there's new version reporting. Winget will now honor the version that publishers would like to display which is useful when packages have different build version numbers and build numbers, and it can now make the correct comparisons when determining if a newer version is available. Thank you to my buddy Jeremy Moskowitz for this next one. He shared this story with me, and I found it really interesting. A Wall Street Journal article reported that Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. have instituted what they call Code Dark, to signal a cyber attack. So if you're not familiar with codes in healthcare, hospitals tend to have a color-based code system. So for example, code red could be maybe a major incident has happened involving multiple victims, which could see the hospital get overwhelmed with incoming patients, or code silver could be an unruly patient getting violent and threatening harm to staff. So rather than have like a long announcement, you know, someone's getting beat up in the emergency room, you would simply put out the alert, you know, code silver, code silver, code silver. Well, now at this hospital, they've got code dark for when there's a cyber attack. It's reported a nurse, doctor, or any staff member who sees something suspicious on a technology device, such as a screen displaying a ransom note or a system failing, must report it to hospital security staff who then call the code. At that point, technology specialists work to secure the network and all other hospital employees shut down machines near them, according to Chief Information Security Officer at the hospital, Nathan Lesser. He went on to state, quote, If we call a code dark, the entire hospital knows to disconnect devices anywhere they can, end quote. The cyber team even went as far to affix reminder labels on machines such as monitors and network connected devices, and hospital staff carry cards with code dark steps on their lanyards. And if you're listening to the audio only version of this episode, you can check out the YouTube edition to see a copy of this lanyard for yourself. And you'll find that at fivebytespodcast.com 
under the YouTube column for this episode, which is episode 242. But I'll read it out for you anyways. It says, on the lanyard in a card, what is code dark? A code dark will be called when the hospital is actively combating a cyber attack. And then it has dark is our plan with dark in bold and then a list using D-A-R-K saying, you know, the steps disconnect your workstation and internet connected device. A, await instructions from the IT department before reconnecting computers. R, report to your managers for department specific downtime actions. And K, know and follow your department's emergency policies and procedures. I think it's pretty clever. It's probably something that all hospitals and maybe even a lot of different types of organizations should consider. And the final news story for this week's episode, Nvidia early on Monday slashed its revenue outlook for its fiscal second quarter on weak gaming chip sales. Nvidia stock stumbled on the news. Investors.com reports Nvidia stock fell 6.3% to close at $177.93 on the day of the results. Chief Executive Jensen Huang said in the release, quote, Our gaming product sell-through projections declined significantly as the quarter progressed. As we expect the macroeconomic conditions affecting sell-through to continue, we took actions with our gaming partners to adjust channel prices and inventory. End quote. Second quarter results will include about $1.32 billion of charges, primarily for inventory and related expenses based on revised expectations of future demand. Chief Financial Officer Collette Kress sent a written statement, quote, the significant charges incurred in the quarter reflect previous long-term purchase commitments we made during a time of severe component shortages and our current expectation of ongoing macroeconomic uncertainty, end quote. So this one's probably not all that surprising. Um, I think it's pretty interesting seeing them focus on the kind of weakness in gaming products in this announcement because Microsoft on their retail side had also shown that their Xbox division was significantly down on their earnings call. But not only that, obviously, with cryptocurrency being in the toilet for the last few months, the demand for GPUs for crypto mining, cryptocurrency mining, I know saying crypto really rankles some people, but the mining equipment is in shorter demand because of price fluctuations and dip within cryptocurrency. So I guess Nvidia may be a little overinflated due to the cryptocurrency boom. And now also being affected by the downturn in gaming. To me, it's still a company with massive potential. Nvidia GPUs are just being used in pretty much everything. Obviously there's AMD as well and other competitors, but NVIDIA have an impressive market share, and I'm sure that's going to continue. So probably just a bump in the road. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Thanks to Steve Noel for this one, who shared a tip from Phil Savage, who shared a little bit of advice, as he said. He said for those using FS Logics, FRX Tray, whilst it looks good and may help your service desk and our users, it should not be set to run at user logon. It should only be used when required. 
Whilst it does show a nice little traffic light to quickly let the user or service desk know things are good or bad, under the covers it is smashing your storage chairs with three file transactions. Create file, query standard information file, and close file every second and sometimes more. Using Procmon and filtering down the capture will quickly show you what fill means. If you're using Azure File Standard for SMB storage or your VHD or VHDX files and you have this turned on, then turning it off will save you a lot of money on transaction costs. Phil says as he is using Azure Files Premium, he thinks and hopes it is the cause of his high average E2E latency, which can be caused by heavy metadata workload on storage accounts. So. It seems like Phil may have learned a very valuable and costly lesson and has shared this so others don't have to run that expense either. So thank you, Phil. Sune Thompson this week blogged on keeping Windows 365 current and staying current with Windows Auto Patch. I had just mentioned, I think, last week or the week before that I've been using Windows 365 for the last year and I was excited to try out AutoPatch, but I haven't been able to yet because it seems like I've got an entitlement problem on my account. But luckily for me, there's this great blog post that I can read about the topic and you should too if it's of interest to you. Fellow CTP and awesome rock star Chris Tweest blogged this week on why ControlUp Edge DX could be your most important monitoring tool. And Chris does a great job of covering the product and some of its strong points of which there are many. There's so much to the product to unpack. Uh, it really empowers you to do a lot within your environment. And I say in your environment, I mean, the name Edge DX might give it away. It's not necessarily just for in your environment, it's throughout in the edge. So people who are working remotely wherever, as long as they've got an internet connection, maybe even when they don't, because once they've reconnected, you can get some of that data. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm ranting, but just check out EdgeDX. And if you've never heard of it before, check out Chris's blog to maybe kind of whet your appetite. So I actually tweeted this week about how I use Automate RPAs for automatically powering on my home lab when I want to use it and an RPA to shut it down gracefully when I'm finished using it. I do this and I'd run it on demand rather than like, you know, at a certain time of day because I'm trying to be conscious of my energy usage. You know, if I don't need it at seven o'clock or eight o'clock in the morning or whatever, then there's no point of having it on every day on a schedule. So I do it on demand. I think it's pretty timely given how expensive electricity is right now and the energy crisis we're all facing. And it's probably going to get more acute as we go into winter. Well, my buddy Niall Brady went even further with this idea and he's created two blog posts so far and I think he's gonna create a third one on automatically powering off your Hyper-V lab with a scheduled task. And he goes through exactly how you can do that. The man Guy Leach tweeted this week that he discovered accidentally that PowerShell's copy item commandlet has a dash to session and dash from session parameter so you can copy files and folders to and from remote machines without needing a C dollar share. He says it's best to set the dollar progress preference to silently continue unless you want it slowed by progress messages. I didn't know about this either and this is pretty awesome. For the last two weeks, 
I highlighted my own blog post. I've created a series of blog posts around application updates for Numescent. And this week was blog post number three in the series where I go through detailing how weekend updates don't have to take all weekend. In my experience, I work for a very large organization with over 100,000 employees. Well, well over 100,000 employees. I just don't want to give away too much information to identify who that might be. Um, but essentially, because the organization was so large, pretty much every weekend, we were doing some major update and some major implementation. And it meant a lot of on-call work on the weekends. And usually, you might be able to knock out the work within a couple of hours. But when something went wrong, which wasn't all that often but still did happen you know it could turn into a six plus hour day so i kind of relived that experience in the blog post and some of my lessons learned from dealing with that type of environment just a reminder the das like a pro which used to be vdi like a pro survey for 2022 is now live i strongly encourage everyone in the industry to fill out the survey because the more people who fill it out, the more data there is and the better idea we can have of what the trends are within this space. Manish Bangia blogged this week on creating Configuration Manager Labs in Azure. So it's not just Configuration Manager Labs in Azure, but also just maybe kind of supporting this hybrid in Azure enablement for your Microsoft Endpoint Configuration Manager. Michael Cade shared this week a really cool single-page SQL cheat sheet. So it might be one worth printing out or putting on a little widget on your desktop for reference. Michael also shared Sid Palace's Beginner to Pro Terraform course on YouTube, which just passed 100,000 views, and I actually just saw it about two or three weeks ago. And it does seem to be really good and really comprehensive. And there's not much out there for free that is so comprehensive. So way to go, Sid. Congratulations on passing 100,000 views. Finally, the awesome Jen Gentleman had shared that one of the updates made in Windows 11 was to make the copy as path option directly available in the right-click menu. So in the insider builds, you can now just press Control, Shift, and C also when a file is selected and will copy the path too. It's such a time saver if you didn't know about it. In previous versions of the Windows Desktop OS or even Server OS, I believe, if you just held Shift when you right-click on a file, it will give you a copy as path option, which is great when you're working with like PowerShell or CLI and you need that path to a file. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.